0: G'day, my name's Brock Cook, and welcome to Occupied. In this podcast, we're aiming to put occupation in occupational therapy. We explore the people, topics, theories, and underpinnings that make this profession so incredible. If you're new here, you can find all of our previous episodes and resources at occupiedpodcast.com. But for now, let's roll the episode.
1: Yeah, so... Um... I found occupational therapy, the profession, and I was about, oh, I think 23 or 24. I was actually working, um, I have a degree in marketing and communications, so I was working at a university in Chicago, and I kept seeing one of my good friends from undergraduate school walking through this university, and she was a special education teacher. And one day I finally stopped her, I said, what are you doing here? what are you, what are you studying? And she said, occupational therapy. And I had no idea what it was. And she came over to my house there that evening. And I was so intrigued. I started looking up stuff right away that night. And she actually got me in with her, with her field work coordinator at a big hospital in Chicago. And two weeks later, I was volunteering in like acute care, like in a hospital here, like people right out of surgery. And uh, it was a Saturday. I remember it was Valentine's Day here in the U.S. And I literally fell in love with OT. I stayed there every single Saturday for two years, just learning and absorbing whatever I could. It was so different from marketing. And that's what really drew me was like the actual, the people part of it. Um, Doesn't sound
0: like you at all. (laughs)
1: well what doesn't sound like me is sitting in a a cubicle working on a computer you know that was very difficult for me
0: that's true I can't picture that
1: yeah I mean I would be like doing handstands and stuff like in the in my little cubicle area in the office and it was just very difficult for me um and it was a rough, it was a tough journey here and I'm not sure about in Australia but here it's super competitive to get into schools so um, with a degree in marketing, I had, I had to start over, and I had to do three years of like, prerequisite courses. And I applied uh, to this, the university that I was observing at, and I didn't get in. And so I kept doing prereqs, and a year later, um, I decided I was going to apply to eight schools. Eight? And Eight, yes. And it was funny because I applied to some of the, the the big universities here at these states like uh, University of Southern California and a University in, in um, New York and I'm, I'm not going to say which university but I got some letters back saying you know thank you so much for um, applying but we have well more or way more qualified candidates than you and I said okay and one of my last places i was going to apply was here in michigan to western michigan university and i i came to michigan and i just i i fell in love with the university and the state and thankfully i was admitted i was one of i think i think they took like 14 people and
0: that's a very small cohort
1: yeah yeah it's, it's a little bit different and then um I was the first time I moved away from my entire family and friends, I, and I moved to Michigan, so I said, it's now or never, and I, I poured my whole heart and soul into learning everything I could during university. I didn't have, you know, another, I didn't have children at the time, so I, that's, I think where I met you is where social media was a huge part of my connection to, to really the world, not just occupational therapy. I was pretty isolated when I first moved here.
0: Yeah, because you were a student when we met, and you just yeah, it, dove into all of the online OT activities, like, headfirst.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, at the time, if you think about it, that was, like, let's see, like, 2011, 2012. Yeah. Like, on Pinterest and things, they didn't have occupational therapists. Instagram was still, you had to have, like, the... um it. remember you had to have like an invite for it or you got to be on a waiting list or i can't remember what I maybe that was. i didn't
0: even know if i was back then i don't even think i had it right
1: and right and so <laughs> i was like searching the internet like where's the cool ot stuff and so i'm like okay well i have a marketing background nobody knows what ot is so let me start advocating for this amazing profession and then you found me on twitter i think
0: yeah and, that uh, sounds it and then yeah I remember, and I still have some of them. You started making like graphics for yeah, yeah. OT promotional stuff, and particularly for uh, MH for OT, which I had probably only just started at the time.
1: It was um, newer, yeah.
0: Yeah, and you just and I had no idea how you were doing it, but and I didn't know you had a marketing background at the time. <laughs> you just started making all these graphics and posting them all over the internet and. And I was like, "Dude, you're still a student, and you've got more passion for the profession than most people that I've met in the profession.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, now that I've been a therapist for almost coming up on eight years i i I think it's it's very easy to have that well for me it was like to have that really passion for the profession as a student, you know um. I think I still really have the same amount of passion for the profession. It just gets a little bit difficult sometimes continuing to still have to advocate for it and market for it. Like I was doing, you know, eight, nine, 10 years ago.
0: So once you graduated, where did you, where did you start working? What field, what did you go into?
1: Yeah. So when, um, during my, my field work experiences, I was introduced to um, childhood trauma and I was able to work at um, the university here um, in Kalamazoo, Michigan started a program or uh, a clinic called the Child Trauma Assessment Center, CTAC. And it's made up of all kinds of professions. There's a a medical doctor, a social worker, um, you know, nursing students, all kinds of different professions. All there together to uh, evaluate children who have experienced um, trauma, and we did that. Is where I, I guess <laughs> it kind of sounds funny, but I fell in love with uh, with <laughs> working in childhood trauma. Um, I just I know that not everybody can do it, and I just feel like it's one of my callings. It's, people always ask, like, how How do you work It's so sad? It's so. And it is, I just, I think, you know, I have the, the ability to do it and, and I'm glad that I do. So back to your actual question. I um, I graduated and it's a little bit here in Kalamazoo because there's a university that there's a, a huge shortage of jobs. It's like oversaturated with, with, with OT students that graduate and want a job. So I had to be like pretty creative with myself like finding a job i worked um i think three jobs my first year i worked uh, prn at a skilled nursing facility which i love as well yep i worked with um i worked at the university i graduated from i was doing a student run clinic a, a pediatric mental health clinic okay and then i was uh working at the, what's called the Family House Center here in Kalamazoo. And that's a unique uh, institution because it's, uh, it's federally funded by our government. And it was the very first site in, in Michigan to have occupational therapy in a federally funded facility like that. Okay. So being federally funded, yeah, being federally funded typically means that a lot of our clientele, or most of our clientele, was um, no income or low, very low income. So really a high at-risk population. And when I started, there wasn't any pediatric program. So I kind of just over time built this program to help the the, probably the most challenged youth in Southwest Michigan. Uh, I kind of, we lost a lot of our behavioral health specialists at the time, especially in pediatrics. So I kind of became like the quote unquote behavior person. Okay. Um, and um, I worked there for six, almost seven years until March, and when when, or when uh, the coronavirus hit, I was uh, a little bit forced out of my job there, and decided to finally take the leap to do what I wanted to do. Since I found out about OT and and start my own my own practice,
0: so uh, that's coronavirus hit now. and you went. I know, this is the perfect time to start a business.
1: <laughs> I, coronavirus hit and I was like, it's now or never.
0: Yeah.
1: You know, I never had been without a job since I was like 15 years old. And I didn't know where to start. I mean, I had a little business, a consulting business. I started in graduate school. And I would do like trainings and things at, at schools on trauma and, and sensory processes. Things like that, but to start an actual outpatient clinic in the middle of a global pandemic was a
0: bit—it's a, a bold move. Yeah, but it's working. Me.
1: It is. You know, I'm just so fortunate that I have so many people in my life that support my vision. You know, if I didn't, I. I would be probably having more mental breakdowns than I already. Yeah, I think every <laughs> every two weeks or so, I'm just crying. You know, just just, sh-
0: just schedule one in once a fortnight.
1: Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Just put it in my calendar, please. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: No, that sounds good. So where? Mm-hmm. So did you do extra training after you graduated to specialize in trauma and that sort of stuff?
1: Yeah. So at first. Yes, I did. I I did a um I I think I have a, a child and adolescent trauma practitioner certification. So it's just more letters, you know, to add to yeah, kind yeah. of the end of the name. But at the time it was uh, not there wasn't a huge focus on occupational therapy to get trained in, in trauma. So it had a, a huge can you hear me still? Yep. Yeah. It had a huge um uh, social work kind of back, background yeah yeah, so I took what I could with it, but um you know just kind of built on my 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 own um, just professional practices, and then I would say what really helped me was you know working with these children and families I would be like majority of my caseload you know, there was involvement with children with i don't know if we, we have called it we call it child protective services, so we have some um Yeah, yeah, so something like that or kids that were in foster care or kids that were adopted. So I would be navigating, like, you know, these children in the social services and the schools with the biological parents, with the foster parents, and that's really what I, I, I learned. I took it upon myself to go to, you know, like different kinds of meetings with social workers or schools or principals or whatever was going on so I could really figure out not just in an outpatient setting, but in their everyday life, like what is happening with these children. So I think that, you know, my real life just experience is really what has helped me be the practitioner that I am today.
0: So I guess one thing to, I guess, give people an overview of, I guess, OT and trauma work, one thing we probably should have a look at is what, what is trauma? Do you have have a a definition or a a theory that you work with about what trauma is?
1: Yeah, for sure. So there's all kinds of, um, and I'm not going to go too deep into all the theories and things like that, but there's all kinds of different trauma and childhood trauma. There's complex trauma. So it's something, you know, a child's experienced multiple traumatic situations over their childhood or there's um, like more of acute trauma. So the kids that maybe have experienced uh, a school shooting or something like that. Um, The complex trauma is really more of my focus. So it's kids that have been exposed to domestic violence, um, abuse, and that's sexual, physical, verbal abuse, um, neglect. Um, Anything that's along those, the ACEs, uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with those, but um, there's these indicators of of trauma. And so any child that has been exposed to any of those things is is basically what I call trauma. And as an occupational therapist, um, it's, you know, when trauma impacts the brain, it impacts development. And so a lot of these children aren't developing at a typical rate or at a typical, you know, Age appropriate level. So I kind of call myself like the OT that gets uh, kids ready to go to OT. So if a kid, for instance, has uh, a handwriting difficulty and they get referred to occupational therapy, uh, well, this kid they didn't know has had significant trauma. So this kid is definitely not ready to sit down and work on handwriting. You know, there's all kinds of things that need to be addressed first in regards to regulation. You know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Yeah, yep. so like, we have to feel safe. Oh, I think I lost my... Was this? I good. think I felt... Um, yeah. I think... um, so a child safe and, like, fed, and all the basic needs have to be met. Or
0: we can I, work on things like hand You. myself. And the, and your, whatever microphone it's using now, it's cutting out. I'm assuming it was just on your computer one before. Okay,
1: I can hear you now.
0: Yeah, it's back in. I can hear you before. It never stopped.
1: <laughs> it, okay. seems to be working. Did you well. ask me something? I'm,
0: uh, no, just whatever you just said, say it again, because it cut out and I didn't hear it.
1: The whole thing?
0: Uh, no, no, just the last, like, couple sentences from Maslow's. Oh,
1: just, oh, just that I kind of, um, I see myself as, the just an occupational therapist that gets kids ready to go sit down and, and do the hand-grading at the next place. You know, there's a, a a need to get for that, because I'll I'll see so many children... And the parents tell me, "Oh, yeah, we went to so and so, but you know, we couldn't reach our goals because you know behavior got in the way." Yeah. And I just look at behavior completely differently, and as and so, I really advocate hard for you know this is not a non-compliance thing. This is like a a, a result of something that's going on in their brains, mm. and let's kind of what can we do differently to support this kid to feel safe and fed and you know quenched and all the things that you have to feel before you can achieve those higher learning skills like like handwriting
0: yeah because i think uh, there's a lot of similarities in i think some of the the theories between like mental health and and the the trauma type world uh, clinically um and one of them is that and I've said it on the podcast quite a lot, like behavior is language. So behavior isn't, you know, they're not acting out to piss you off or anything like that. If someone is exhibiting an abnormal behavior, it's due to something. They're trying to say something without being able to actually say it. And they may not even need, know that they're they're trying to say it, but um, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, like the basic... Really, really, really basic and generalized i guess effects of trauma are essentially that those sort of normal uh emotions love safety, all that stuff that we sort of a lot of people might take for granted when they're growing up is what actually shapes us into the people that we then become and how we react to situations and what we expect from relationships and all of that kind of stuff and if you're environment isn't safe or loving to that extent then how you behave and how you react as you get older is going to be different as well and that's that's how i see it that's that's pretty much i know there's a lot of nuance and stuff that goes in Mm -hmm. there as well but on a very very basic level that that seems oh that
1: was beautifully stated like
0: let's (laughs) replay that back and like use that
1: (laughs) yeah no and and just on top of that just like just even the ability to achieve skills Hmm. you know like you can't skill acquisition is not something that we should be thinking about until we feel you know safe and regulated and just uh to add a little bit to that it's with children, their brains aren't even fully developed yet. And grown-ups put so much expectations on children anyway, and then add a child with trauma. Most grown-ups just don't get it. Yep. And it's difficult to understand for sure. But yeah, I think you summarized it perfectly.
0: So do you think, uh, obviously, uh, I'm trying to look at where the OT role sits within that. And I think within any behavior um area it's not necessarily about the behavior but it's the behavior not sitting within a social norm that can sometimes stop people from being able to engage in their occupations you know if you're going to a shopping center and the the child is having a tantrum or screaming punching people that sort of stuff that's obviously against the social norm and might uh not necessarily physically but might make the the foster parents or the the actual parents uh reluctant to take them out or take let them socialize with other kids and that sort of stuff and that sort of almost compounds the the experience that they've already had do you find yeah. do you find a lot of that and is that i guess a hard thing to break that sort of pattern
1: yeah I mean, that's a, that's a really great question and and I get that I, I do find that and it's not just children with trauma I would say that's probably one of my most common um, concerns for caregivers mm-hmm. and that's with my kids with um, sensory processing difficulties my kids you know with like the attention difficulties it's like they they're out like you said at a shopping mall and they're just completely dysregulated by all the sounds and lights and smells and whatever and they're like we can't take our kid to the grocery store, or so and so can't spend time at grandma's house. So I spend a lot of time um, in that piece educating caregivers and and family and and any important grown up in that child's life about the types of things that could be a trigger for a child, and then you know how can we avoid it, and then how can we teach him tool teach him or her tools to identify that within their bodies, and then kind of cope or self-regulate as it that's the ultimate goal is for them to be able to participate again but it's super difficult um because there's so much out of my control like yeah. i could do the most amazing session in the world the parents are completely on it the kid is doing so good and then damn a judge says we think that the biological parent needs the kid back or deserves the kid back and the kid will go back and i'm they may lose all their skills or they go home and, you know, mom and dad are fighting and it just disrupts the system again. Yeah. Or they go to school and they're suspended. Just all the other, all the other barriers. But yeah, it's difficult, but I feel like it's a huge fight, but I'm still willing to do it.
0: (laughs) I think that, I mean, it's, it's worth it. (laughs) Like you you have to, you have to do it. It's almost, uh, I don't know. I don't know how you could get involved in that area of work and not have that passion for that particular fight. Like, if you weren't willing to do it, then you probably shouldn't work in that area. There's probably better areas for you to work in if you're not up for that.
1: 100%. You do have to have, you know, a thicker skin for sure because I... I, specifically um, advocate a lot for children in their school settings because you know that's like their main education like that's super important for kids and I'm not sure about in Australia but in the United States there's just this huge focus on behavior tracking behavior tracking behavior 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 and um, for years I've been like whoa 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 like let's let's you know like assess the environment like check out his medical diagnosis like see what's going on and interestingly enough, now I have a son old enough to be in public schools who has no trauma that I know of. You know, ha- um, definitely has got some sensory and some probably ADHD tendencies like his mother, and uh, and now involved in this this kind of uh, battle with the school about what what is behavior and what is not, and and and, and more importantly, some of these the assumptions of why kids do things. Mm difficult for me like don't assume I'll get a, a note home saying like who, my son is five or six by the way and he's on the playground with his friends and you know they probably thought they were Pokemon or something they just get in these imaginative worlds so I got a note home saying you know uh, playground fighting or playground play fight turned into to real fighting and the motivation it said was peer attention and I was like is it peer attention? Like, are you sure? Like, who? how are you qualified to say it? You know, I just have so many questions and schools don't always like that. So yeah, definitely have to be willing to put up a fight to be, to do what I do for sure.
0: I don't know if anyone has ever picked a fight so that other people will like them. <laughs> like that doesn't even make yeah, sense. Yeah, that's true. Yeah.
1: Yeah. The yeah, joys. It's, it's not even trying to pick it, you know. I'm just trying to advocate for these children.
0: So, with the... Do you think it's, I guess, trying to reinforce that? Do you think, with regards to occupational therapy, we need to be looking at our occupational things as opposed to the specific behaviours?
1: Um...
0: So, like your environment, what they're engaged in, the trauma itself, that kind of stuff. Do you, I guess what I'm saying is, do you do a lot of work directly with the trauma, whatever's happened to them, or are you more looking at teaching them to regulate and manage, sort of going forward?
1: Oh, for sure, yeah, and it's hard for so many people especially students that that i teach or that come with me for clinicals because especially for children like there's no clear cut answer and it's definitely not about the diagnosis it's about how it's impacting their daily life so yeah their occupational
0: sounds like the occupational therapy different. who knew
1: yeah yeah that's what it is yeah <laughs> it's never about like yeah the actual trauma that they, that's what they go to see you know i work I try and work um, closely with behavioral health and, like, the social work or the counselors and things like that. Yep. They can address their trauma. But, you know, I'm just, like, let's helping them function and helping them live, you know, healthy, happy life.
0: Uh, I think there's a lot of this kind of stuff being thrown around, like, words uh, in the profession, and I'm not 100% sure, like, I tend to poke the bear quite often. I'm not 100% sure everyone actually understands what they're talking about. So mm-hmm. one of the terms that gets thrown around a lot is trauma-informed care. What is it?
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I mean, I would say it's it's changing the lens of the way that you view behavior. It's not just... Or not even just behavior just the way that you view an individual an Mm -hmm. individual you know you have to look at and that includes people that you work with trauma-informed care is not just about the the, the clients it's about yourself and the people that you work with and making sure that you're just using that lens when you are providing those services and then that's pretty vague and Maybe yeah, I'm one of those people might throw out words <laughs> I don't know what I'm talking about, you know. And I've been on a trauma informed care team in a psychiatric hospital here, so I should probably have a, a better definition. But I
0: don't think you need a dictionary that would be definition. My, but
1: that would, yeah, I think that would just be my goal. Like if I was if I was like, oh, you're trauma informed, that just means like you're not just looking at something in a traditional lens and just following like policies and procedures, saying like, hmm, maybe this is because of x y and z and like let's look at this person compassionately and then also realize that their trauma may impact you as an empathetic you know person and practitioner and how are you gonna take care of yourself to make sure you're regulated and you're healthy so we can co-regulate and make the world a better place
0: i'll put a pin in that bit because i want to come back to the self (laughs) self self-care aspect of it because i know yeah yeah i mean similar to mental health it does take a toll on the the therapists as well but i just wanted to look at uh i guess more of what you're actually seeing in say your clinic or your your day-to-day work do you find Mm -hmm. i guess what i'm curious about is uh for example when people talk about stress stress is stress doesn't matter where that stress is coming from it manifests itself in your body it's the same chemicals it's the same thing is it similar to trauma like you mentioned a number of different types of trauma earlier um you know physical violence emotional sexual assault that kind of stuff do you find that those traumas uh in the behaviors that you see from kids later on manifest similarly or does sort of each kind of trauma have its own sort of uh, I was going to say look, but like, I guess how it presents down the track.
1: Yeah. That's a really great question. I, I think that um, there are definite, uh, how would I describe it? Not patterns, but definite. Um,
0: Big like correlations between. Yeah. Like behaviors. I see the
1: same, like I see the same kind of things, um uh, there's no black and white for every kid. Obviously every kid's different and depends yeah, yeah. on so many different things, but some certain things like things that I'll see and that, that I, I will warn caregivers are um, a lot of these children will have a couple of things. Um, they'll have some kind of like food scarcity, um, okay. like condition. Um, they will, and that, you know, they will hide food, they will hoard food. They will just all kinds of things related to food. And then the other one would be um, toileting. Like uh, a lot of kids will start to regress in that. They will um, like urinate in their rooms or under their beds or things like that. And those are probably the two most common things I see throughout that are like huge red flags for me um, or that are a result of. And I do think it's because children feel out of control. And especially like, okay, you're getting pulled from your home. You're supposed to go home from school. Mom's not there. CPS is there. And now you're going to someone else's house. So kids are like, they have no control of the situation. So the one thing they can control, right, is what they eat and how it comes out.
0: Yep. Okay. Yeah.
1: Besides that, then there's some some typical stuff like um, not hitting developmental milestones, um, inattention, disruptive behavior giant behavior aggression um, difficulty
0: managing emotions yeah so those behaviors you see like sort of doesn't matter what the kind of trauma is you see those sort of with anyone okay because i guess yeah uh, yeah. i guess the way it's portrayed sort of in movies and tv shows is very different Mm -hmm. in that it seems to be almost very specific like you'll see you know in a movie or something someone that's been sexually assaulted will then portray sort of hypersexualized behaviors or someone who's been witness to or experienced violence throughout their childhood then becomes violent kind of thing do you find there's sort of any of those uh, kind of patterns
1: yeah I'm, yeah there's, there's truth to that for sure yeah um i would i would say Specifically the, the sexual assault and the hypersexualized behaviors. Absolutely. Um, but I just, I don't ever look at one child the same way. And so it's kind of hard for me to, I, I see things like, like, Oh, that might be an indicator. Maybe he you know, has, cause I don't always know what kind of trauma okay. they've experienced. So that I guess okay. kind of in a way is helpful for me because it doesn't matter. It's just kind of, again, yeah, just how yeah. it's, impacting their
0: daily life yeah and i think that's 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 really important for all it's that's something i advocate for within mental health as well as like it doesn't matter what the diagnosis is we're working with what they're experiencing and how that's impacting what they can and need to do kind of thing um yeah i'm just more interested in the the actual sort of trauma itself because i don't have a lot of specific experience uh working with trauma a lot of the 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 trauma work that I've done is tra- well, uh, the health system can be trauma inducing for a lot of people. So a lot of the behaviours that I've seen yeah. uh, and worked with uh, people to adjust has predominantly been caused by being in the system for so long. So right,
1: systematic, exactly. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, I mean, I would consider myself a mental health occupational therapist, um, you know, that's, and I think that anyone that says that they're not, that's an OT, and that they don't, you know, do mental health, then I'm like, yeah, maybe we need to re-examine what it is that we do. And I would yeah. always tell students that I'm like, even if you think you're not interested in mental health, I don't care what setting you're in, mental health plays probably one of the biggest factors on people's ability to achieve their goals. And yeah, so yeah, I you know I did I started in the psychiatric hospital too and and I hear what you're saying about the systematic uh
0: yeah. issues
1: and results of that.
0: As our our mutual friend Eric Johnson says there's no health without mental health.
1: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's a good one.
0: <laughs> so coming back to uh the self-care and, and uh, I think that's a big thing for a lot of healthcare professionals, not just looking at trauma, but pretty much any healthcare setting is sort of like in mental health, we would call it like transference in that my mood, my behavior can transfer onto the person that I'm working with and vice versa. You know, if they're in a shitty mood or they've really burned out, like that tends to transfer to me as well. Um, especially when we are working in a properly sort of collaborative model, then we're also not just, you know, sharing the, the brain load, but we're also sharing the emotional load sometimes and that sort of thing. I know in my experience, and I can only imagine in the, the population that you work with, like you hear some really heavy shit and it must yeah. <laughs> weigh down on you some days. How... Do you have what steps do you take personally to I guess ensure that you don't burn yourself out or don't end up burnt out because of just working with that population?
1: I don't know if I can give you I think that I'm still on that journey right now, to be honest with you, finding that that balance and then adding on the complexities of having your own children. Um, working with children that have experienced abuse is one thing, but then when you have your own children and then you come home to that, it's completely a different just beast. So a couple of things that I make sure I do is um, I try super hard. Sometimes I'll just sit in my car before I walk inside the house just to kind of make sure I'm not transferring that mood or self. you know, as hard as it could be. Um, just kind of Walking in my house and giving my kids what I give my clients, or giving my family what I give my clients.
0: Do you do anything? Do do anything in the car? Like while you? Well, right.
1: That being said, you've got to do something with all that stuff. I usually don't have time because I'm about a mile and a half from my house to to where I work. But um, that being said, that stuff goes down, and there's something to do with it. So the things that I can tell you that have worked for me. I started trying to meditate almost every day that that mindfulness piece is huge. And that helps me in my practice too. So I'm not constantly focused on all the things that are going on. I'm just in that moment with that client and, and giving them whatever I can. So that, and then, um, just like the the stuff everybody says that you should do, you know, I think that as at least that I know most caregivers like us, are way better at taking care of other people than we are ourselves. And so kind of just looking inward and being able to reflect on, you know, treat how would I tell, you know, a client or a caregiver to to handle that. You know, maybe I should do that. Maybe I maybe it would help if I spoke to somebody or if I started doing that. So just constant looking inward and self-reflection is, is super helpful and
0: just being mindful that if you aren't good then no one around you is going to be good it's the old uh and i've again people probably sick of me saying it but the old airplane adage about putting your own mask on before so you can help others before you put anyone else's on yeah yeah, yeah. uh i i find it uh, what you describe with the sitting in the car and and sort of chilling out before you go inside seems to be a a pattern with a lot of the people that I've, I've talked to about this kind of thing in that they, they, not necessarily that exactly, but they do something that creates a separation between work and home. Uh, whether it's, uh, like, I know someone that, and I probably should have done this last year while I was working at home, but I didn't, but I know uh, an OT who, again, was working at home during the pandemic and would get up in the morning, do the same routine, would walk around the block and that was her walking to work and then pretty much straight back in her front door into her office and then at the end of the day would go the other way, back around the block and then back home. Yeah. And that was her ending the day and walking home um, and that was her way of separating, okay, look, work's done or home's done, I'm starting work and that was her way of creating a separation even though physically... Mm you're in the same space and that's something i definitely didn't do very well myself last year um was creating that separation between work and and home and i'd imagine that would be hard sometimes owning your own practice and i'm assuming i'm assuming putting out the window
1: now that i own my own practice yeah
0: whatever (laughs) hours are required as opposed to set hours all the hours So Mm, I'd imagine that would be something very difficult. The meditation one is also something that is coming up quite regularly when I talk to people about this kind of stuff. Um, And you said you do transcendental meditation. Did you? I'm sorry? What sort of meditation did you say you were doing?
1: I I don't know the word that you just Uh, used, but I actually – so the Headspace app when uh, – Yeah, I started doing that because it was free for a while for us here in the States, at least when the pandemic hit. And, oh, my gosh, I'm addicted to that thing. It's so amazing. And I use it with my clients, too. My kids meditate. My kids love to do yoga.
0: I used to do that, Honestly,
1: yeah, the OT, like, my youngest kid, I mean, my eldest kid wants to be an occupational therapist. So maybe I'm not doing a great job of separating the two, (laughs) but I'm not bringing the trauma so that's
0: important he just sees all the cool swings that you've got there
1: yeah no i mean he 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 talks about like doing joint compressions to calm down and like he's like he's getting well
0: trained already
1: yeah well you know i graduated ot school and then had a baby basically so it was like all fresh in my
0: head and needed some way to offload it
1: yeah, and he used to go with us every. When I had one kid, he would take us. Every, we went to all the, the AOTA conferences. This one was pretty popular for a minute.
0: I remember seeing photos of you wandering around with <laughs> him and, at the conferences.
1: <laughs> I know. I wonder if we'll ever have a conference again.
0: Uh, I think we will. It'll just won't be, mm-hmm. I think, as soon as everyone hopes. Yeah. Which, but... yeah, I'm okay with that. It'll It'll get back there eventually in time, all in due time. Yeah. I think it's interesting with the the self-care thing because I feel like it's an aspect of working in traumatic, I was going to say traumatic workplaces, potentially traumatic workplaces, but with Mm -hmm. populations who have experienced trauma that we, like you said, we don't recognize in ourselves. It's actually our trauma for us being able to being exposed to you know those stories and those behaviors and you know uh, not that it's the 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 intention of the client but i've felt threatened before by clients due to their behaviors and that kind of stuff um i don't blame them for it or anything yeah it's you know can take you by surprise in the moment sometimes but Like you said, if you're looking at behavior as uh, essentially a symptom of, you know, a previous experience, Um, there was a a, a TED talk by Eleanor Langdon. She's talking about psychosis, her own psychosis, Um, but there was a line in there that I think fits like incredibly well with so many different diagnoses and populations. And she sort of described psychosis as a normal reaction to an abnormal circumstance. And I think
1: mm-hmm.
0: that fits, because I resonated with that with regards to depression and anxiety. I think it also fits with hey, trauma, yeah. that kind of stuff, because the the behaviors that the, the people are, are exhibiting are generally... What you would expect, like it's a fairly normal reaction to, like when you actually understand what's happened to them and what's going on. It's a normal reaction to a very abnormal circumstance. Like if you're, yeah. uh, I think about it a lot with. I don't know, this is not a very good correlation, but I see it a lot with, say, like pets. If you've got a, if you adopt the dog, for example, and that dog has been hit quite a lot of times, then every time you move your arm it's going to freak out and it's going to cower. Now, to you, you're like, oh, I was just reaching for something on the top shelf and the dog freaked out. But to the dog, it's like that's a very normal reaction to a circumstance where I would hope that 99% of people don't hit their dogs. So it, technically it's an abnormal situation, but that's a very normal reaction to an abnormal situation. I think that's a it's a learned behavior, essentially.
1: Yeah. And that's what I'm over here screaming to the schools that are like telling these kids that they're, you know, have these behavior problems. I'm like, Whoa, 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 Whoa. Let's, let's, let's look at this differently. And I think you hit on that perfectly. And that's actually why I've been asked a couple of times to do work in our, like our juvenile justice system. So people, you know, that are actually have already been incarcerated at a younger age. And I'm like, I just can't work there because I will justify every single like crime that there is like i'm like well you know their mom didn't know any better or their dad didn't you know they were abused so i just try and focus on the uh, i say that just younger kids but i see an age span i have adults and kids so not just little kids i know a lot of people that just are focused on you know like the zero three population but that's
0: just not but you just mainly see like the not doesn't matter their current age but that they had trauma when they were kids
1: That well, and and that changed. That's changed a a bit since opening my own clinic because I said, like I said, I don't have kind of access to that federally funded uh, system that they have at at my uh, former job. Yep. But I still do do that, and I still do that here. And I would say it's not all I do here. So that is a huge helpful aspect of opening my own practice. Is that. I have a healthy balance of just like some typical. I do have some kids that come in. They can sit down. They can attend a task. They can learn to handwrite, and then they can go home. <laughs> and I'm like, whoa, this this is amazing. This this stuff does work." So having that balance has been really helpful and for my oh, just psyche it. and like mental health. Because sometimes you're like banging your head against like, am I even making a difference? You know, like what what am I doing? And then I have to come back. Okay, every moment that I have that's impactful with this this child or this caregiver is important. And I might be the only and I've been I've been told this several times throughout my career, like, you are the first person to listen to me. Or you are the first person to like look differently at this. And so when I hear that it just keeps I keep reflecting back on that to give me motivation to continue the the fight.
0: Which is really awesome for you, but I think it says a bit more about everyone else. Exactly. <laughs> well, we're not gonna. That's another episode. That back. is. Yeah, I don't want to annoy too many people right now. So yeah, with the so working I have like with 10 minutes. hey, I have like ten minutes. Sorry, I have another client. That's all right. Okay. Uh, so with uh, like working with older 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 teenagers, that sort of stuff. Do you find? Obviously, we know you know kids' main occupation is play. As people get older, they. Develop all these other sort of interests and occupations. Yeah. The stuff that you do with sort of younger kids compared to the older kids, obviously the interventions themselves are going to be different. But theoretically, are they still working along the same kind of process? You're looking at sort of regulation uh, yeah. and being able to engage yeah, in those occupations.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I tell you that teenagers are much more difficult for me. I like a good challenge though. You know, they're much more stuck in their ways and it's harder to I
0: think it like, just teenagers. You know,
1: little kids think everything's great, yeah.
0: you know? <laughs> like
1: teenagers don't think anything is great. But I I like that challenge. Um, but yeah, same same theory for sure.
0: Awesome. I know you've gotta run. I won't hold you up too much. Thank you so mm-hmm. much for, for coming and having a chat. It's always awesome to, to catch up after so many thank years thank so much for having me uh, I
1: know I'm so grateful for you
0: if people want to check out your stuff check out your work online is there somewhere they can check out you on Instagram
1: <laughs> yeah I'm kind of so as a clinic owner I'm also like in charge of my own marketing and everything right now so everything's kind well, of all over the you've place you've got the background yeah, for it you can so. check, um, yeah <laughs> yeah you can check me out Arise Therapy and Wellness um, across all platforms and then I also have, I still have, um, it was the OTI project, what is it now? OT life that I, uh, just advocate more for like the profession, um, to other professionals on that, um, on Facebook and uh, I can't think the OT life or rise therapy and wellness where you can find me.
0: <laughs> cool. And I'll throw the links to those into the show notes of this one. Thanks so much.
1: You're amazing. I do thank buddy thank you Black. have
0: a great well I mean go to sleep <laughs> if you liked this episode and want to check out more head over to occupiedpodcast.com or search occupied podcast in your favorite podcasting app if you have thoughts or reflections on the topics discussed today please do get in contact we'd love to hear from you and lastly if you got some value from this and you want to help us out like subscribe and share it with a friend Remember, be good to yourself, be good to others, and always keep occupied.